welcome to This Week in Sparkling Water. My name is Iwa Kimeakson, and I'm the host of This Week in Sparkling Water. This is episode 101. At some point, I was thinking that every 50 episodes, I take a break, call it a season, do 50, 50 episode season, but but I don't... I don't know. This is my form of self-therapy and I'm not I'm not doing well enough to take a break from my therapist. <laughs> God. Okay, I hate the I hate the way that sounds, but that's okay. Um this episode I really want to like overshare and talk through some like difficult, very personal stuff that no one should be talking about. And because it's too much, I have to start by talking about some boring shit so people stop listening so that 20 minutes into this I can feel like like there's no one there. So I can be honest. So let me start by talking about... Well, first of all, it's funny how last episode was two and a half hours, but there was still like stuff I forgot to say. <laughs> like I was talking about Soleil and how my first impression of... I was trying to apologize to her and say nice things about her. So I was talking about the first time we met because she made a really good first impression on me because we cleaned up some garbage and she really took initiative and, and this stuff. And, and, and I was also talking about Chef Eric a lot. And then there was this perfect story that hits all of those things that was related to everything. And I forgot to tell it. And it's the story of, I don't know. It's not that good of a story, and the moment has kind of passed, but it's like Chef Eric on his first day. This is before I was even there. He's told me the story. It's like he – because me and Soleil was – we got garbage on everything. And then he had this thing where on his first week, he's working. At the end of the night, he's alone there. It's like his first night alone there. He's taking the trash out, and he got – he was overzealous. And he, he, we have this like weird boat shaped sled that you can fill up with trash, trash bags and recycling stuff. And then you pull that down to where the big trash containers are. So he filled it up too much and he's like all new and nervous at this luxury hotel and he wants to make a good impression. He wants everything to be perfect and he's super tired because he's been there since 8 a.m. and it's like fucking midnight. <laughs> he's pulling the sled and he fucking loses control of the sled. And this enormous trash bag rips open and there's this BMW and it it falls next to the BMW, barely missing the BMW, but this this huge you know industrial sized trash bag full of little little bitty food waste and and just all this gross shit goes everywhere under the BMW so at midnight when he was so ready to go home and he just wanted to be done and he was just going to take the trash out and clock out and be done and be like okay first week at work almost done i'm doing good it's going well you know he is finds himself laying on the ground, you know, scooping the trash out from under the BMW. Because, I don't know. Anyway, I don't feel like this story has any color, but but it's like that would have been a great... If I'd remember that story in the flow of last week's episode, that would have been great. 
there's this other thing I've been thinking about, which is how um, it's another social media observation. It's like a weird feeling how when you're on Instagram and you're looking at someone else's life and you do this thing where you see their life and it's like the fun part of their life and it's when they're at the river or when they're at the beach or when they're having brunch or when they're out, you know, they see something pretty and they take a picture and maybe they put a filter on it, maybe they don't. The filters are kind of overplayed. We don't really do the filters so much anymore. But regardless, there's the abstract, the, the, the metaphorical filter of how you only take pictures when you see something pretty. You don't take pictures when you see something mundane and boring. The thing you see every day. Um, you, you see someone else's life like that. But it's weird because it's not like we see that, see the flow and feed of someone else's life and then sit on a couch and look around the room and compare their feed to what we see in the room. Like that's not actually how it works. The way it works is that we then upload our own stuff and what we're actually comparing is we're comparing our own feed basically to their feed. And so there's this weird thing where you can disengage and not be on social media. Like now I'm, I don't have anything on my phone and I check it on my computer every once in a while. And I'm in a pretty good habit with that, where it's like, that means that it can't take up that much of me. It cannot ruin me. But I don't post anything ever. I never post any pictures from my life. And the result then isn't that I compare myself to the people's lives that I see that are great on there and I feel bad. The result is that I, I'm, I end up with this feeling of just not knowing. I just don't know how my life would compare because I haven't seen my life for a long time now through the lens of the square pictures that we decide to put on Instagram. And because I haven't seen my life through that, I don't know. It's just you end up with this weird vacuum. It's like you don't know if you're living a good life or if your life is good enough. It's almost what it feels like. It's weird how there's no solution to any of this. It's like I would post stuff years ago when I was on Instagram. I would post stuff and I would overthink it and I would spend so much time on what do you post in that square little box of your Instagram feed. And then I'd be like, no, I'm thinking about it too much, so I shouldn't post pictures on my actual feed. I should only post stories because stories are only up for 24 hours, so they don't matter so much, so I won't overthink them. And then you just do that, and then you overthink that, and, and fewer people see it because it's not even permanently on there. It's incredible. Like, there's no solution. And then when you disengage, you are that, – like, the takeover of our lives – like, some people – Manage to avoid this by just never, by just being hippies off the grid from birth. But for normal people, for the city folk, the takeover is so fundamental that there is no way to, even when I disengage completely, I am left with this Instagram-shaped hole in my brain. Anyway. Whatever, it's boring.
Um, there's another thing that I was talking about last episode that I was that I that I've been thinking about a lot because it's such a it's sensitive. So it's this concept of I keep saying audience of one, but it's something like when you make content, whatever you make, and you put it out, and you you're looking for an audience. I'm starting to believe that you really have to conceptualize your audience as one person. Because if you see it as anything more than one person, that will come with it, built in, a nothing is ever enough quality. That's very reminiscent of AA and addiction and all this stuff. Where like in AA, there's this expression of this well-worn, very true, very, very solid expression of you know, if you're an alcoholic, then one beer is too many and, and a thousand beers is not enough. You know? Now, the, the high number can be whatever. One, one is too many and a hundred is, is not enough. And it's, it really speaks to something of how you never get there. You know? You, you want more, so you get more. But that never gets you there because the goalpost always moves, and it's it, it's like I've retold this story before. But the the thing that really really crystallized things out for me in my in one of the things I think back on on my sobriety, it's like such a mundane moment, and no one else that was there remembers this. And it was like super not dramatic, but I just really it was a thing where something in my brain puzzle pieces just fell together. It was like. We were playing cards, I think. We were hanging out in Ballard. I was living with my wife at the time. I was playing cards with my coworkers. We were having a couple of drinks. We were we stepped outside, took a break from the game, stepped outside to smoke weed. We're getting kind of wasted. And we are standing outside smoking weed. And while smoking weed, I say, hey, you know what we should do? We should go smoke weed. And I really meant it. Because what I meant was, I have an idea. I want to go there. Now, what I didn't realize in the moment saying it, because I was wasted, is that I was already there. But the there was never actually where I, like, I never actually got to the, to the there. Which, which I, it's so hard to explain this, but it's like, that's when I realized that I never get there, that I do this thing to get somewhere. And then I realized that I've, I've never been there where I want to be. I get on this train and the destination is where I want to be. And I get on the train every single day and I've never been to the destination. And it's like, I'm already, we are smoking weed right now. You cannot suggest that we go smoke weed because that is what we are already doing. And the cyclical thing there highlighted the paradox for me where I was like, oh, I never get there. And then everyone just laughed at me because it was such a like stupid stoned thing to say. But yeah. So yeah, that's the goalpost moving thing. So there's something about an audience that's like a very addiction thing because... So 
there is a truth between one and zero, that zero, it's not, a, like if you make something and you want to share it with the world and you're looking for an audience, then an audience of zero is actually not enough. But an audience of one needs to be enough. Because if one is not enough, like with this podcast, I don't do any marketing. I don't put it out anywhere, pretty much. And I have about a 100 people that tune in every week and just listen to it. Lazily, I assume. <laughs> and then modern, like just the way the internet has told us what numbers mean and stuff. A 100 is, I am taught that a 100 is an embarrassingly small number and that that's not enough. So I need to chase a bigger audience. Now, everything I'm saying here is it's sensitive because it's it feels like I'm being defensive with how I'm not successful, like how I'm just coming up with excuses for being unsuccessful. Like I'm just trying to explain why it's okay that I'm a failure. And I understand that it sounds like that a little bit, but there's also something other than that to it where I'm like, it needs to just, if a hundred is not enough, then I cannot imagine that a hundred thousand is enough because it will be the same thing. It will be me having a hundred and saying, hey, you know, we should get a hundred thousand. And then it will be me having a hundred thousand and me saying, oh, hey, you know, we should go get a hundred thousand. But my brain will just placeholder fill in the next number. We should go get a hundred million. Now, I don't know how to get I don't know how to even get 200, so don't get me wrong. I'm not choosing to not have 200 listeners because I don't know how to do anything like that. But it's the point is that that has to be fine because it has to just be one. I have to conceptualize the audience as one person. And at times I have to actually practically believe it as one person. Like I've had to many times just believe that the only person listening is Dr. Luke or maybe Erica or maybe Soleil. Just one person. And it's like, I need to just be okay with that. And that's when it stops being a chase. And that's when we just rest in the peace. In a, It's a peaceful, we just rest into a peaceful state of, it's already good enough, you know? which is what the addiction solution is. Like like you have this thought, like, oh, I have to go get wasted because I feel terrible. And the solution to that is to just relax and, and realize that it's okay to feel terrible. Everything is already good enough. You have this idea, you sit down and meditate and you're like waiting to feel really calm because you're like, I'm meditating, shouldn't I feel really calm? But really you should arrive at this realization that everything is already good enough. Well, I have been feeling extremely anxious recently about some things that might be or become big problems and things that are big problems for people around me. Earth-shattering sized problems. And I have had to teach myself in the last week specifically to think of it as, well, those people clearly don't have the anxiety that I have. 
and I have to be grateful for my anxiety because logically it is looking like my anxiety will save my life here. Because my anxiety makes me risk averse. I'm probably jinxing it and my earth will probably shatter since I say that, but... But at least, even if everything comes out worst case scenario, it's like, at least this moment is fine. Like, it's not here now. It's like the broken foot thing I was talking about last week of how the pain of a broken foot is so small compared to the pain of all the terrifying thoughts you have when you break your foot. Of how, like, my foot will be broken for the rest of my life. I'll never run again. I'll never experience anything good. I'll never go skiing. And because I won't go skiing, I will be unable to find a wife because a wife wants someone who's active and who can go skiing. So I will die alone. And I won't have enough money because I can't work with a broken foot. So I'll be completely alone and dirty and I won't have any money and I'll be homeless. And it's just like an, a downward spiral to the actual bottom and then I'll be trapped at the bottom. And I'll just lay there uncomfortable and dirty and I won't have access to running water and I won't be able to wash my hands. 100% earnest that that's my fear, you know? Not exaggerating at all. <sighs> yeah, what was I saying? Yeah, so it's like, yeah, you know, this moment is actually fine. And then I'm afraid of these earth-shattering bad things that might happen, but it's like... <sighs> anyway, let's drink a water. We're doing some tropical today, so we're starting with mango. Mango black tea. Aha. Caffeine sparkling water. Ooh. Very clear, strong mango smell. Okay. Okay, I fucks with it. I fucks with it. Mm-hmm. Gentle sort of tea bitterness to balance the mango sweetness, but everything very much like in the whisper range. We're using inside voices in this sparkling water. There's no yelling. Everything's very quiet. Everything's very, um, it's a very chill, hydrating kind of deal. These ahas, they have a nice graphic profile, don't they? I mean, of course, the Coca-Cola company is going to have something good going like that, but canned under the authority of the Coca-Cola company, Atlanta. What is by a member of the Coca-Cola Bottlers Association? Hmm. I don't know. That sounds really gangsta for some reason. It sounds really mafioso to me. But that's a good water, though. Those Coca-Cola gangsters, they make a good water. A. <laughs> like, like you gotta pay protection money to be allowed to do Coca-Cola, but... Yeah. I don't know. Next thing. Let's start by talking about these things that I shouldn't be talking about. Things that are oversharing, and things that are... <sighs> Oversharing is less of a problem, but infringing on other people's privacy is an issue. 
So we're going to talk about a bunch of things here, and I'm going to just keep it as anonymous as possible. And really, what I want to talk about is my feeling towards my own life. But I have to use some of these things that have happened around me to illustrate that. So first here, let's talk about a person that I will just call this coworker A. Coworker A, you know, this person started working here like a long time ago where I work or whatever, somewhere. Person A started out kind of shitty at their job. And then it got a lot worse. And then person A, you know, I thought we were, we had a similar sense of comedy humor. We liked some of the same podcasts. There were actually things we were connecting over. And then we just sort of slid apart where, you know, something I like about Theo Vaughn is his sobriety journey. And this person was always like, yeah, Theo Vaughn's the best, but this person was always saying that while being wasted, you know? And somehow I was always reminded of this. Theo Vaughn has a thousand things to say about sobriety, but he has this one thing he says where he's like, he he says he doesn't like talking to drunk people. So he's a stand-up comedian and he'll go to these shows and then people will try to talk to him after the show and they'll be wasted. And he he just finds it uncomfortable being sober and talking to drunk people. And he doesn't have a good explanation for why. But the feeling is true though. And it's just it's just like that. It's just uncomfortable. And in those moments I was rem- I would always be reminded of him saying that because listening to her talk about how much she likes Theo Vaughn when she's clearly wasted, I was like, I felt sacrilegious. I felt sacrilegious. I felt like she was missing the point. Um, yeah. Felt like she was missing the point. He or she, coworker A. Anyway, Things got a lot worse, blah, blah, blah. Coworker A kind of got fired or something. I don't know. Maybe Coworker A was allowed to quit. Maybe Coworker A got fired. Anyway, there was an exit and it was messy. And then the thing is that, like, there's this other coworker. Let's call this person Coworker B. So when Coworker A exits, Coworker B is like, let me tell you a funny story. And coworker B pulls me into this other room and is telling me this big story and is like, so when coworker, a, coworker B is like, oh, you know, when coworker A got fired, coworker A immediately then went to this other establishment and was pretending like coworker A is going to buy something, but they just got fired like five minutes ago. So it's, this person should not be buying, should not be spending money. You know, this person should be focusing on sobering up and getting a new job. But this person is out there pretending that they were going to buy something, but really they were going to steal something. And then the person gets caught stealing like five minutes after getting fired. Like they literally walked out of an establishment where they used to work after getting fired or quit or something. Walks around, stumbling around town all wasted, ends up in a different establishment, is trying to pretend like they're going to buy something, tries to steal something, gets caught. And then when coworker A gets caught stealing, they play it off as like, oh yeah, no, I was going to buy this. And then coworker A proceeds to pay for it, the thing that they were going to steal. You know, I have no idea how much money this is, but 
let's just say it's 200 bucks, you know? So then coworker A, who just got fired, proceeds to pay 200 bucks for something they don't even want. And coworker B is telling him the story and we're laughing up a storm and it's so funny and we're so judgy and we're making fun of coworker A and it's like, ha ha, we're so much better than coworker A, right? Is that the case, you know? Are we so much better than coworker A? Or is everyone the same, you know? Ha ha ha, you're telling this funny story, ha ha ha. Is everyone the same or are we better than coworker A? Because then fast forward like two, three months or six months or 15 years, you know, who knows? Then I'm out here and coworker B is like, wasted. Coworker B is wasted and there has to be an exit, you know, and there's another exit and coworker B is allowed to quit or gets fired or just walks out or, you know, I don't know. It doesn't matter. There's this thing where coworker A left and we make fun of coworker A and then coworker B leaves. And then people come up to me and they're like, what happened? What happened to coworker B? And then I'm put in this position where I'm like, I have these funny stories about it, you know? Because for some reason, someone ruining their own life is always like funny from the outside. It's like funny. Ha, it's so... Like when it's not us, it's so funny. So I'm like, the the tr- the truth or whatever, like the actual just bullet points, just the facts, the sequence of events of what happens when coworker B leaves or whatever, can be told in a funny way. So people come up to me and they pull me aside and they're like, "Well, what happened here? Like, what's going on?" And I am inclined to tell it as a funny story, and I like start telling it as a funny story. And the story always gets stuck in my throat because I'm like, now I'm just coworker C, you know? Like, if I tell this as a funny story, don't I just become coworker C? Isn't it just a chain suicide here? Where as soon as we offload it, we were next? And it's so judgy and it's so horrible and it's like, fuck. Coworker A is a good person. I cared a lot for Coworker A. God, I hated Coworker A, but I cared for this person too. And Coworker B, maybe we never really connected or whatever, but Coworker B was a decent person. And then I'm supposed to be telling these stories, making fun of Coworker B, and it's like, God damn. Yeah. I really feel like I'm setting my, like every word I say in this story of making fun of coworker B, I feel like I'm setting myself up to just be like relapse and then like get wasted and then get fired and then, you know, and coworker D will be telling funny stories about coworker C and coworker C is, is, is Joachim. Coworker C is me, you know? I don't know. It left a bad taste in my mouth, the whole thing. And what it really did was like, I end up having this imaginary conversation in my head with coworker B. Because coworker B and me talked a lot. And coworker B made fun of coworker A with me. And 
And in my head, I just want to talk to Coworker B because I haven't talked to this person since the exit. Coworker B, in my head, I just want to be like, so what? What are we doing here? Why were we making fun of Coworker A so much? Like, how delusional are we allowed to be here, brother or sister? How delusional are we allowed to be that we think that we're better than someone? Aren't we all the same? Because I think we might all be the same. I think we might all have addiction problems, and I think we might all be walking a really treacherous path in life of, of not being able to handle our feelings and and. I don't know, dude. All these, there's so many people around me that I can clearly see that they have an issue and they don't want to admit it. I'm going to put someone on blast here because I love her. And I was talking to Stephanie about this and Stephanie is like, Stephanie had some bad things happen to her because of drinking. And when really, really, when, if, if you don't, here's, here's the thing that, that we don't realize ourselves and that it, I don't know if I even realized it yet, but that I hope to realize one day. If we don't have a problem, if you're not an alcoholic, then if you drink and something terrible happens to you because you were drinking, you won't drink again. That's just how a human being works. Like that's just how thinking works. But if you drink and something horrible happens to you, and then you're out here negotiating and being like, oh, I better not drink that much anymore. That means like the size of the – look at the size of the problem created from alcohol in your life. And then if you're still out here convincing yourself that you need to have a couple of drinks, that means that your size of how much you want to drink is bigger than the size of your problem. And just think of, you don't know how much you want to drink because that's invisible to you, but just look at the size of your problem and realize that how much you want to drink is actually bigger than that. And that's fucking big as fuck. Because if you were any kind of rational person, and man, this goes for, it seems like I'm speaking to like a super niche group here, but nope, I'm speaking to everyone. I'm speaking to a lot of people. Like this goes for you, Joey Bartender who has bad things happen to him, and then he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it under control now. But it's like, bro, why are you drinking at all? Like, Stephanie, why do you need to have two drinks? The, the existence of the two drinks in your system implies a desire to drink that is so vastly large that you need to recognize how big your desire to drink is and you need to recognize that that's a problem. Wanting to drink that much is in itself a problem. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, that's like a circle that I've walked in with myself for years now of just like every week I'm out here trying to convince myself like but I could just do it a little bit and then I realized that but I ruined everything out of doing it and so the fact that I still want to do it but just a little bit must mean that my desire to want to do it is bigger than how I ruined absolutely everything in my whole world it's like this weird solar eclipse thing where like you can't actually see the size of how much you want to drink you can only see the shade it casts on the moon or the sun or the fucking earth or whatever. You can only see the implied, 
You know, it's like the sun. My desire to drink is big like the sun. And I can never see the sun, but I can see the full moon. And when I realize that what the full moon really is, it's like, it's just this pitch black, dead piece of dirt in black space that is shining so bright in my face because it is reflecting this incredibly large other thing. Because this is nighttime in in life. I don't know. I feel like I kind of lost control of that metaphor, but you get it. Let's review another water. So the last one was, I'm realizing this is a good flight because these are very similar. The last one was black tea mango. This one is peach black tea from Nixie. That's nice. Episode 101. God. Oh, God. Wow, that's different. Oh, so that's more like, the last one was um, very, very light, 50%, no, 60% mango, 40% tea. Like the aha, everything is a whisper, and the tiniest of those whispers is the tea. This is like drinking cold, unsweetened black tea that we have a whisper of peach in. Like this is just a bunch of fucking, this is a lot of tea. Oh, it's black tea and green tea, yeah. Like, that's a very strong, which is very nice. God, that's bitter. That has a beautiful bitterness to it. Nixie. This is from Briar Patch, which means it's expensive and organic. Mmm. Co-op. Mmm. Gluten-free. Well, well, I'd, I'd sure hope so. Vegan. Mmm. I'd sure hope so. Oh, it's made by someone named Nicole. The sign-off on the fucking copywriting is, Enjoy. Regards, Nicole. Which means that she named it Nixie after herself. I I just was emailing with this guy from a sparkling water company called Wilfred's. And this guy Craig emails me, and then his signature, I can see that his middle name is Wilfred. So he named the company after himself. Uh, how fun is that? It's so fun. It's like that terrible sparkling water company that's now in Panda Express. I can't even remember what it's called, but that was just the guy's fucking last name or something. Anyway, I like that too. That's also an 8 out of 10. Um, all right, so let's move into something even more difficult and even more private and even more oversharing and even more infringing upon other people's privacy. Because now we're deep into this episode, and so now I feel like no one's listening, so now we can be totally honest here. So, to start this off, the thing is that I was ta- I've been talking to my friend Sam, and she talks about her problems, and I talk about my problems, and, and we have known each other for, you know, a decade now, so there's some really tough love we can give each other. And we know about each other's psychological models, and it's good, you know? Sam said a lot of things to me that made me realize stuff that she didn't even realize what she was saying, but it made me realize stuff that led to me getting a divorce. Like, I would still be married if it wasn't for Sam. And lots of other stuff. But so Sam and me were talking about... um I was talking about this issue I have of trying to find a long-term relationship, trying to find myself, trying to be okay in a long-term relationship, trying to 
What is it? What is the problem? The problem is that I get bored in relationships where I pick the wrong partner and there's a compatibility problem and there's all this stuff. And so Sam gave me some quite conventional advice, which is maybe try not to sleep with them right away. So conventional. And I don't mind this advice. And I do think that there's a lot of wisdom in these old sort of, they're kind of the echoes of religious ideas and stuff. It feels like there's a lot of sort of religion that we've discarded the religion, but some of the lessons hang around. And I feel like some of that's going on in there. And I don't mind this advice. But so then we start unpacking it and like, why though? Like, why do people say don't sleep with them right away? Why is that good advice? And I think what we mean when we say that is that don't meet someone and go on some dates and stuff and spend time with them and get to know them before you sleep with them because sex makes everything complicated and sex might be corrupting to your thought process. Sex might make you not think of it clearly because thinking of it clearly is to think of it rationally, think of how they treat you and how you treat them, how you want to treat them, how they want to treat you. Think of compatibility. Are you actually compatible? You know, what are the actual issues here? What are the actual advantages here? Like, wh- how is this good? Do they, do you respect them? Do they respect you? Like, what are the actual things going on here? And then the idea is that if you start having sex, then sex makes you, like, not think about it clearly. I think that's, like, the conventional sort of setup. And the thing that I realized when we really start unpacking it is that that misses the point for me completely. Because really, are we even recording? Let me, hold on. Yeah, we are recording. It's good. That stuff misses the point for me because I experience it as sex is a lot more confusing for women than for men. For me, it's like I always figure out a way for the sex to be like kind of good and like it's kind of good for everyone, you know. We're kind of hanging out. We're kind of working on it. It starts out, never starts out. It doesn't start out perfect, but you like work on it. And like there's a lot of different things to like figure out and you can like take it slow and like not try everything right away and like you know the sex is always like I always end up seeing the sex as a kind of separate journey that doesn't influence my thinking that much but here's the thing that does corrupt and influence my thinking and really muddies the water for me it's my need for connection and my like sex isn't the thing that makes it hard for me to think clearly about this what makes it hard for me to think clearly about this is how fucking lonely I am And how I fucking need connection. Like, I don't have a best friend that I can check in with every day and that I can just talk to about stuff every day in a flow of, in a way where they just, they just listen to me talk about it in an unfiltered way. And they just let me talk and they just are my friend. And I let them talk and I listen and I acknowledge them and they acknowledge me and we we shoot the shit a little bit and we bounce ideas and it doesn't have to be super meaningful and we just hang out. 
and we're just there for each other and we trust that we will be there for each other. Like, because I don't have that, when I start talking to someone that has the potential to be a romantic partner and maybe a monogamous relationship, they quickly turn into this person that I just check in with every day. And then what you run into is this, it's almost like this problem that you have with like getting a new therapist where like, if you've ever gotten a new therapist, (laughs) what you... What you experience in the beginning is this like overwhelming discomfort of realizing that you have to explain everything to them because you're not sure what's relevant. So you have to give them your entire backstory, which is incredibly convoluted. Where it's like, it would be so much better if your mom was a therapist so you could just tell her what happened today and she already knows everything from your past from the moment you were born so she can tell you what's probably irrelevant to what's why you did that or why you reacted like that or why you feel bad about that or whatever. It's like getting a new therapist means that you have to get them all caught up and getting someone all caught up is so slow and like boring to you at times and it's like not you're not sure what's even relevant and it's just so like it at minimum for anyone taking it even vaguely serious it has to take 20 hours like I don't know sure if you have a very um if there's like a specific traumatic event that you're trying to work on with a therapist and the therapist has a very specific perspective or method, sure, maybe you can work on it like that and they can ask you these directed questions and it can be like a 30-minute intake and now you're, you're, off, you're off to the races, you know. But to any of this like vague modern therapy where you're just sort of like sh- talking, it's like, bro, that shit's going to take forever. And so getting someone caught up, like once you start talking to someone, once you go on a first date and a second date and a third date and you're talking intensely the whole time because both people are like kind of interested in each other and trying to see what, see if this is, if you have interesting conversations and stuff. Like once you're there, once you're establishing that connection thing, and here's the thing, bro. Like, I'd, I'm out here admitting I don't have a best friend that I check in with in a good way. Bro, that's most people. Like, most people that I go on a first and second and third date with, it's the same for them. Like, once we're on date six, I'm now the person that person talks to them more than anyone else. And that's not that good. They have now become a person that I talk to more than anyone. And so... Bringing it back to the beginning of what I was saying here is like, (sighs) what it means for me is like, I need to meet someone and I need to remain cognizant of that. And I need to, when I'm on date five, I need to be like, are there glaring problems of compatibility here and how much we respect each other and how much we're into each other? that I am just disregarding because I'm so hungry for any sense of connection and so hungry for another human being to just have someone to check in with at the end of the day, to just not feel like a tumbling black rock that's just like dead, just like a dead piece of heavy metal burning up in the atmosphere all alone. God, mixing my metaphors, but... (laughs) But the point is that on date six, I need to be like, look, am I just lonely here or is this like a person that I want to spend? 
Because usually I think on day six, there's something like, this is what I was talking about last episode was like, usually on date six, I think subconsciously, I know that there's some issue here. That's like a compatibility problem. That means that this is not someone I can spend the rest of my life with. And then I choose to disregard that because I'm so lonely. Oh, God. It's like there's this... Um, there's this song by Zizza where she goes, It's hard enough that I let you treat me like this. I'm lonely enough that I'm going to let you treat me like this. And it's like so beautiful and honest to me for someone to say that. And it's not, that's not exactly how I feel, but it speaks to the loneliness. And maybe that's more, maybe when I'm shitty, that's more how the people I'm shitty to feel. I'm lonely, so I'm here and I'm forcing myself to be here. And then I'm a little bit shitty. And then the person is lonely, so the person is allowing me to be shitty to them. And that person is lonely enough to let me treat them like that. And it's like, bro, fuck. It's, um, so I, I, I was working there for like weeks there. I spent all my waking time thinking about how to design a book cover for my book, which is hard because I'm just not a designer. So I'm really starting from scratch. So it's like, it can't look exactly like anything else. And yeah, so I looked at a thousand book covers. And then I came across a couple of titles where the text, like where the actual words in the title were just like so beautiful to me. And I, I really liked the book named um, Darling, You Can't Do Both. I just thought that was a really nice microfiction in the title itself. It's something about how women need to think about it differently and how... And, and on the book cover, it's like, darling, you can't do both. And the, that's the name of the book. And that's what's on the book cover in the biggest lettering. But, but it's also scratched out because it's a book about how that's not true. You know, that's a sort of false dichotomy. That's a limit. That's a limiting belief, whatever. I don't, I haven't read the book, but I assume that I assume it's about how you can do both <laughs> because it's scratched out. I assume it's a book about how you can do both. But anyway, which isn't really a very good advice because I would much more recommend the book 4,000 weeks about how stop believing we, and it's like that. It's funny because it's like a gendered – in the darling, you can't do both thing, it's very gendered. But in 4,000 weeks, it's just not gendered. It's much more about – it's almost gendered in male of how men are really taught that they can do everything. And then 4,000 weeks is about stop believing that because that's just going to make you feel like you're never doing enough. Start instead accepting that you'll never clear the decks and just be in the moment of the process. It's interesting. I've never thought about it. There's actually something very gendered there. The 4,000 Weeks is maybe a man book. But yeah, I've recommended it to some women and they... More than one woman after I recommended it to them were like, yeah, this is... This is helpful. So when I say gendered, I mean in that sort of 
one-dimensional thing. But th- that wasn't even the title I was going to mention. I was going to mention that the the most beautiful title of all the book book titles that I came across looking at all these covers was actually the book by, I can't remember her name. She's a punk rock girl. She has a punk band, but she's also the girl with, oh, it's so fucking sexist of me because Portlandia is two people. It's Fred Armiston and this woman. (laughs) I don't remember the woman's name. In my defense, I feel like Fred Armiston is more famous than her. Also, here's a little equalizing thing. I think I'm actually saying his name wrong. I don't think it's Armiston. I don't know. Fred, whatever. The woman in that, the woman in Portlandia is also a punk rocker, also in a band. She does a lot of different shit. She's obviously hilarious because Portlandia is on season nine or whatever. In Portlandia, there's like countless, um, countless sketches in Portlandia that seeped through the cultural, uh, you know, consciousness and became just monolithic ideas. But, her book, she wrote a book, and the name of the book is Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. Oh. Oh, fuck. Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. Ooh. Ooh. To me, that's like, that's the top of the mountain right there. Oh, wow. I love how... I love everything about it. I love how I wouldn't be... I couldn't come up with it because I'm not a girl and you have to be a girl to say it. And I love love the feeling of looking at someone do a craft and looking at it and feeling like, yeah, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do... I could never... I could spend my whole life trying to do it. And I would never be that good at it. And that's how I feel. Like I could be my, I could live my whole life trying to come up with titles, names for books. And I could get really good at it. And I could come up with a really good name for my own book. And my book could be named The Potato Eaters of Shanghai. But I could spend my entire life and I'd never get that good where I could come up with the title, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. It's like, there's no fat. There's rarely fat, though, on a book title because it's supposed to be so succinct. But, like, um, it's like a weird, like, the matrix of the world. Like, how is hunger connected to modernity and gender? And what is hunger? It's like the feeling of wanting more. The feeling of always wanting more and never having enough and always being famished is the thing that makes you different from pre-modern. Oh, God, everything about it is like, the more you unpack it, the m- I, you realize how you're not equipped to unpack it. Like, when I start unpacking it, I realize I'm not smart enough to actually understand it. But it's like, but it's all there. It's all there and it's all beautiful. Oh, it's so fucking good. Hunger makes me a modern girl. God. I I guess, you know, when I saw it and when I was blown away by the goodness of the title, I never once felt, oh, I should read that book. But that's because I was in a mode of looking for 
visually, I was looking for a visual design for books. So I wasn't looking to read a bunch of books. So, and that book that visually it's not actually that good. And, um, like, it's just a black book cover and the text is white and the text is, the weight of the text is too light. And there's like a black and white oversaturated sort of photo of a woman in the corner screaming or doing a punk rock thing or some shit, stage diving or something. But the words and the poetry of the words will carry you across the finish line there. But so what I'm realizing is that I should probably read that book. Yeah. Excuse me, I had a little burp there. Um... Anyway, so I was thinking about that thing. I was thinking about that thing with Sam and how Sam is out here giving me advice because I'm not thinking about it clearly. And she's like, to think about it more clearly, maybe don't get sex involved. And then when I think about it in terms of that, I realize that it's actually the problem is my loneliness. So almost one solution there is to like, make sure first that you have a best friend that you check in with all the time. And then you can start not feeling so lonely that then you can go on dates and f- and look at it clearly and be like do am i compatible with this person in a fundamental way where or because i'm not confused by my own loneliness here like that's the conversation that was going in my head and then i was reminded of this old story and it's not that old and the last part of the story happened recently. But it's like, and I'm going to say, parts of the story I sound really mean, but I'm going to say all parts of it. Because really, it's a story where the point of the story is, I was meditating on this yesterday and I, I came up, the point of the story is my flaws. And I'm going to first mention someone else's flaws, but 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 just bear with me to the end and you'll realize that I... I'm not as mean as I sound, but like, so it's like this. So I, there was a person that I went on some dates with more than a year ago, maybe. We go on a first date, we go on a second date, we go on a third date. The first date, maybe we just chill and have a beverage somewhere. We're talking, it's like very nice and it's very civil and we both come off as kind of smart people with similar maybe political values, similar maybe you know, ways of similar frame of reference, just like a, she just was like a healthy, physically healthy, mentally healthy, just a little bit anxious, but has it under control person from like a modern, not tortured family, you know, so there's not like some crazy daddy issues. There's not like some religious extremist upbringing. She's just kind of like thinking about things clearly and being a good person. So there's a second date. I invite her to my house. I cook her dinner. We're hanging out. And then second date, I ask her if I can kiss her and we like make out a little bit on the deck and then we eat some food and then we watch a little bit of TV maybe. And then maybe third date, we like I don't remember, maybe we like sat outside and maybe fourth date we like made some pots out of clay and now all the girls that I've been on dates with who were at some point made pots out of clay with them, they'll be like, oh, you're like that fucking piece of shit guy in that Olivia Rodrigo song, Deja Vu, who just like does the exact same thing with all the girls, but it's like, shut your face, I just do that all the time. 
It's just something, I just need to do something with my hands. So I do that alone all the time, often, and I do it with people often. And it's like not, I don't, I'm not claiming to be, I don't know. Maybe if I go on a date with someone and then for date four, I invite them over to my house to like make a pot out of clay, a flower pot. I need to tell them like, just so you know, this is not the first time on date four, I've told some girl to come over to my house and make pots. You know, like, am I supposed to say that to not be a piece of shit? Probably. So uncomfortable. (laughs) It's so uncomfortable. But anyway, so... Maybe we did some of that. And then maybe she came back to me, came back to me and was like, come over to my house. Uh, let's do some watercolor. She, cause she liked to paint watercolor. And so, so we're spending a lot of time together, right? We're going on all these dates. There's a lot of good conversation. There's a lot of smart conversation. You know, the news, politics, how we feel about things, our families opening up a little bit. Yeah. And another thing that's just like about how that's different from me, maybe, or you something, it's just the healthiness of, of, of just sticking with a career, sticking with an idea, a career, a, a, a job idea, going to school for it, sticking with it, getting an undergrad in something, getting a job related to your undergrad, just working on it, working at the same company for enough years that it makes sense, working on a craft, building a career, having one of these, just having the, we, we, on some level, like, I'm fucked up where I leave and go to a new city every single year. And I'm 35 and and I've done that 20 times. And it's a form of self-sabotage and it's pathological and it's a way for me to run away from my emotions or thinking I'm going to run away from my emotions, but I'm always right there. Wherever you go, you're right there. So I'm always feeling my shitty emotions in all these new cities and always blaming the city and always going to a new city and I'm like super fucked up and I have no career because I'm always leaving and I can't never stay in a job, blah, blah, blah. That's my problem, right? And that's the problem of tons of people who have some of these problems that I have maybe. And then me looking at her and just how she is like in year 10 of a pretty pretty consistent path where she maybe is in her late 20s and it's just going to go kind of well for her. I can just tell how she's like, she isn't haunted by demons. And that means that she, I was saying some of this to Sam and she was like, look, the fact that you don't live in your small town doesn't mean that you're a loser or self-sabotaging. It just means you didn't want to live in your small town. And it's like, that's true. But it's like, my shit is like way more than it's my shit is way more self-destructive than just, I don't live in my small town anymore. Anyway, so this lady's like healthy like that. And so there's date three and four and five and we're making out and stuff. And then somewhere on date five or something, ah, this is tough to talk about because I just want to give you the facts of the story, but some of the facts of what I thought and stuff are so mean. So somewhere on date four or five, we're making out and it's nice and maybe it's a little bit handsy and stuff and and at some point there maybe I kind of tried to have sex with her and maybe she like didn't really go for it 
and I'm not pushing, you know, like I'm not a person who's going to be pushing, you know, so it's all good. Like it's date five, like on date five, I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised because on date five, when, when the conversation is really nice and when you're like open about stuff and especially since I got sober, it's like, look, we're on date five now. Like it seems like we're getting along. Everything's nice. Why are we not? Why? Why? Like, I don't say this, but in my head, I'm like, why are you not having sex with me? That's kind of confusing. And that's kind of like new to me. Like, like I'm perfectly, um, used to not having women be super attracted to me. Like, I don't think of myself as particularly attractive. I think of myself as a six. And then I moved to America and people think I'm tall. So I, I'm a 6.5 here or whatever because I'm 6'3", but it's like, I never thought of myself as handsome or nothing, but but it's like, if you're willing to go on five dates with me, I just thought that that, that we were on a path towards something, and, and it I was just like, low-key, in a very sort of undramatic way, somewhere in my subconscious, I was like, huh, because I remember the specific moment, oh, this is so private, but I think there was this specific moment where... We were making out a little bit and we'd had like a nice healthy meal with some greens and stuff. And I remember just like pulling her like a little bit close and like grabbing her by the, by her denim pants, which included some of my, some part of my hand sort of being inside of her pants and pulling her close like that a little bit and just grabbing her a little bit harder and being like just like tugging a little bit on her face and biting her on the face a little bit and just switching a little bit into animal mode just to see how we'd feel and then her pulling away a little bit and me being like oh okay so we're not going there yet and here's the thing I think subconsciously I thought she was very nice and we had a nice time, but I think subconsciously I thought I was prettier than her. And maybe I thought she was, oh, how do I say this without being, I think maybe I was like, she was pretty enough that I wanted to have sex with her in that moment, but subconsciously I'd made the decision that I didn't want her to be my life partner though. So in a way I was just out there to try to have sex with her a little bit. Like that was something I was into because that's a nice path. Just like having a long drawn out courting. It's just kind of enjoyable. And then she somehow subconsciously I think was aware of my decision or my opinion or whatever you want to call it what she could tell that I was kind of into her but that we weren't that connected and that some we had some of our walls up and that I wasn't I wasn't really available to go 100% and that she just wasn't there for that and she was somehow she was lucid enough or like just healthy enough mentally that all all the things in her mind was allowed to be 
considered when she made decisions. And she didn't, horniness for her didn't take over. And the willing, the wanting, the infatuation thing. She wasn't infatuated with me in a way where that took over. Instead, everything was considered. And when everything was considered and weighed equally, she realized somewhere in her mind, she knew that I wasn't going to be there for a, I wasn't, we weren't on a path towards like a healthy, long-term, harmonious, equal relationship because I thought that I just wanted her for something like kind of short term. Even though on the surface I was doing everything as if I was going for, yeah. So we went on another date and then I just kind of felt like I'm not trying to push myself on this girl. Like I can't, I couldn't, I wasn't. I wasn't going to alter anything in my subconscious, any decisions or stuff. And if this girl is not really like going, like if this girl doesn't seem that into it, I'm not going to push. So, so we just sort of like texting sort of tapered out. And then after date six or something, we just like didn't see each other again. And then she came into my work once or twice. And I always thought it was really awkward because I did, I never... Why did I think it was awkward? I thought it was awkward because I never had this situation with people. Either they reject me before we even meet up, which is the most common and it's fine. I'm not super attractive and I'm kind of a fucked up person and don't have a lot of qualities. All good. Um, or, but when, once we started meeting up, like I've, I always, the filter for me was always like, if we connect enough that we're, that we go on a first date, then this is probably going to go pretty far. And if, you know, I usually, I always take the conversation and when things don't go well, I take the conversation of being like, I don't think this is going well. We're not doing this. But with her, we just never had the conversation. It just tapered out. So I thought it was really awkward. And then I realized that she was like friends with some of my regulars at the restaurant that I've had all these long, hilarious conversations with. And there's this one guy who has all these invented cocktails that for some reason have Canadian city names. And so I'm always telling him like, whenever he sits down, I always tell a server like, hey, this guy, get him a Toronto, you know? And he laughs and the server is super confused. And I'm like, get him a fucking Toronto. And then I walk away and, and he thinks it's hilarious, but the server is confused. And I'm not making the server's life easier, but I don't give a fuck because it's between him and me and it's hilarious. And like um, this one time he even, I had watched like a movie about wolves in Canada and it was like a super specific, weird, esoteric movie. And when he sat down, I was like, bro, you're the guy who always orders Canadian drinks. And then I start talking about, I'm like, hey, I watched this movie yesterday about Canada. And then I realized that he's not from Canada. He doesn't give a shit about my movie. But I've already talked about the movie for like two minutes. And so I've embarrassed myself because I seem autistic at this point that I can't read normal human facial cues. So I'm like, this, I'm actually just rambling here and these people just want to order food and i'm like being a really awkward weird server and i'm like uh it's sort of my heart sinks while i'm two minutes into talking about this wolf movie 
And I'm just like, oh, I'm actually being so uncool right now. I'm realizing in my head. And then as I cut myself off and stop talking about it, a guy at the table is like, yeah, I've seen that movie. And he picks up and starts talking about the movie and saves me, thus making it as if I'm not that weird. And I'm just like, yes, this is a valid thing to talk about. He's talking about it too. And yes, we're good. I'm not that autistic and I'm not that weird. And we are connection, human connection, you know? It's like, <laughs> you know what it's like? The, the TV show Maniac, which is my favorite television show. It's the best television show that's ever been made. It's, it's about everything I like. It's about AI and loneliness and, and romance and, and human emotion and what it feels like and what, what computers can tell us about our emotions and what they can't and all the beauty of it all and all the chaos of it all and the freeformness of how some of it is in a simulation. It's like the best TV show ever. But the first fucking scene in the whole thing is that it shows this beautiful, weird future America where Japan is like taken over and there's like old Japanese technology sort of littered all over American society, controlling some of American society. And it's like this very cool, but it's not noir. It's not nighttime. It's daytime. And there's no neon. So it's like a dusty 1980s technology way to do it. But so in the first scene, it's showing people walking around and there's a voiceover talking about human connection and how Everything from the beginning, the Big Bang and why the first organisms exist is all about how humans just, how we just want to feel connected. And then there's this part where the voiceover pauses and the main, one of the main characters, characters played by Emma Stone, she's buys a pack of cigarettes or something. She's in a cafe and she looks over at a guy at another table. It's a table. It's a group of 10 people and she looks at the guy. And the guy's telling a story and then he tells the funny punchline of the story and he laughs and everyone at the table looks away and no one else laughs and he just sits there completely no alone and isolated and he like looks down at his hands and he's like no one th in his head you can tell that he's like oh no one thought my story was funny no one laughed at my joke I feel completely isolated and the voiceover about how the worst thing we can feel is isolated. The voiceover stops and you just look at this man and he's isolated. And then he looks up and he sees the Emma Stone character see him be lonely. And that makes it even worse because he not only is he lonely and he's alone with his loneliness, he sees how someone can tell that he is a failure and disconnected and lonely. And And it makes it even worse. So he starts to fidget when he sees her see him fail. So it's like this micro depiction of the worst thing a person can experience, in my opinion. What was I saying? Dude, how did I... Why was I thinking about that? <laughs> anyway, the loneliness of it all. But so... Oh, yeah. I was talking about that guy who's a regular. So the guy, I, I this one time I accidentally talked about a wolf movie for too long, and then his friend saved me and, and kept talking about the wolf movie, and it, he smoothed it over, and it was like as if I was saying cool shit, and then I could just bring it back to center and be like, all right, what can I get you to drink? And then we're good again, and we're, I'm cool with that guy. And then one time I realized that the girl that I went on some dates with that I stopped talking to, she's friends with that guy. And I, it was a weird clash of universes where I walk up to them and I'm like, Ooh, okay, so 
have to acknowledge the girl, have to be really cool with the guy. Ugh, awkward. Don't know how to handle this. So she comes in a couple of times. Things happen, you know? We're aware of each other in this big room. And we're both anxious enough that I know that we're both anxious about it. And then this thing happened last week where, I don't remember, it's something where I think a, a four top sits down, four people sit, four guests sit down at a table and Stephanie goes to greet them and waters them and says hello. And then there's something where she's too busy or I don't have any tables or for some reason she's like, you want this table? Excuse me, I did a burp. For some reason she tells me, you want this table? And I'm like, I do. I do want a table. I don't have anything going on or something. So I go over there and I look at the first person and the second person and the third person and I say hello to all of them and we're chilling and I ask if they want a drink and then I look at the fourth person and it's the girl. It's the girl I went on some dates with. And how do I describe all of this? Oh, God. Like I wish I could describe why I think I'm prettier than her, but it's too mean. Can I say it? Can I just say that I think... Her face is a little bit asymmetrical. Like she has all these qualities and she's really smart and she's really funny. And she's outdoorsy and she's physical and she's skinny and she's cool and she's got a good job and she's not haunted by her demons. And then I'm out here just being like, yeah, but I think her face is asymmetrical. And I'm out here being a complete piece of shit just thinking about how, well, so that's the most important part, right? So, we're both awkward when I go up to the table and take a drink order. But I, here's my point. I, at this, look, I have to take a break. I have to go pee. Hold on. Okay, here's my point. My point is the following. We're both awkward, but I switch into a, I'm old enough now and confident enough now and sober enough now that even though on the inside, I'm the most anxious person you've ever met. I can just not act anxious. Like in my heart, I'm literally, like, it feels like I'm having a heart attack all the time. It feels like I'm 35 years into a 4,000 week long heart attack. Like I, it feels like my chest is going to explode. That's how anxious I feel. But I don't have to act like that. I can just put that, I can just be with that and act like whatever. So, when we when we're doing it in reality when i'm out here at her table and i see her and see she's see she sees me tongue twister um we both are like oh and i go hi and she's like oh hi and then i take their orders pretending like nothing and then or no, I'm like, oh, how are you doing? Like, I acknowledge that we know each other. And I ask her like another, I ask, hey, how's it going? And then I'm like, oh, hi, oh, how are you doing? And like a, like a acknowledging that we, we made out once. You know, this one time I tried to stick my hand in your underwear and, and you didn't let me. <laughs> God, I hate this podcast. <laughs> Fuck. Okay, so 
I'm old enough and confident enough to just pretend like nothing. So when she orders something, I'm like, I don't do the thing that makes you seem anxious where you just wrap it up and walk away. I do the opposite where I'm like, I make it a long conversation. And I'm like asking her, oh, have you had this drink before that you were ordering for me? And I start describing it. And I, it's like, oh, you want the lemon shandy? And it's like from this trucky beer brewery where they um, brew this like nice light lager with quite a bit of hoppiness to it. And they mix it 50-50 with fresh squeezed lemonade. And it produces this like balanced, it's got this zingy citrusy thing it's sweet but it's also hoppy so it's like a fruity hoppy beverage and that's like a, a shandy is like a british thing uh, and it's like a very drinking this thing is like a very british experience it's actually quite nice and i described this all of this to her you know pretending like i'm not having a heart attack on the inside <laughs> and she isn't old enough and confident enough and just good enough with her anxiety to do this, to, to do, to return the favor. So she can barely respond to what I'm saying. So her mouth is clearly very dry as she's talking and she can barely respond. And looking at that, it seems like I am cooler than her because she can barely talk. And I'm out here fucking explaining, explaining the UK to a bunch of fucking Americans, you know? And I just seem like this, I don't know. <laughs> Probably I don't, but in my head, I think I seem like this cool guy. And the thing is that her boyfriend is at the table and he's shorter than me and he's kind of pudgy and he's got this like really uneven, thinning, weird ginger beard. And I just think I'm prettier than him. And I think I'm prettier than her. And I think she can barely talk because I'm standing right there talking at her. And I think it's easy in that moment. Here's the what the feeling I was left with. The feeling I was left with is I walk up to this table, I take a drink order. I'm this cool guy. I'm cracking all these jokes because that's what I do when I panic. I crack jokes and I'm making everyone laugh and, and I seem like this cool guy and then I walk away. And it's so easy to look at the surface of that situation and be like, wow, that guy is cooler than that girl. But here's the thing. She's the winner, you know? And as I go back into the restaurant, into the private space of where I go to hide after I talk to people, because I'm so scared that after I go out on the floor and say hi to a guest, I always have to take a breather in the back and just sit on a chair and just bury my face in my hands and just cry, just literally cry because I have nothing, like I am nothing. I am just this terrified Swedish worm, just this stupid potato swede. And metaphorically, there's dirt under my fingernails and I shouldn't even be here. And I should just be in, I should be in restaurant jail and I should be in, I should be in every jail there is, you know? Everyone should point fingers at me and laugh because I'm the most embarrassing person. And I'm the shittiest person in the whole world and I fucking suck. And I've embarrassed myself and everything sucks. And I'm sitting there back there and I'm thinking about it and it's like, the truth is, though, that she just made good decisions for herself. Where she just picked someone who's on her level, probably someone who is well-rounded enough and calm enough. Because the thing about having a good job and just landing in one of these tech work-from-home jobs 
where you just do something like not too many hours a week that pays you like what you need at that time in your life. Like in your late twenties, they pay you 80 grand and then you stay on that path. And in your mid thirties, they pay you 180 grand. Like the key to those jobs is to be smart and to have a calm belly. And that's it. Just be smart and have a calm belly. And I'm not delusional and I don't hate myself too much. Like I know I'm smart, but I don't have a calm belly, so I can't do it. Like I will always leave after a year and self-sabotage. So I never get there. So I'm always at the entry level. I'm always in the lobby, you know? I never get out. I never get off. I never get to the top floor of the building. I'll never get there because I always have to walk away 12 months into any career and just shoot myself in the foot and give up. So I've never gotten anywhere and I will never get anywhere because I don't have a calm belly. So she's out here and she's smart and she has a calm belly and she makes good decisions for herself. And it's like so fucking incredible to just see someone pick a good partner where there's like probably good compatibility and there's probably good, like there's no black and white thinking. There's just, it's so sensible. God, it feels like I'm saying this and that I, what I'm really saying is like, I think of her as this smaller than me person or something, but it's like, bro, no, it's not that it's the black and white. It's the, it's the right sizing thing of how I both see myself as a worm and someone who should be president. And I've, and I can never get myself to the middle. And a big part of me is so envious of her because she just, has this ability to just see herself for what she is and to just pick a partner that's just compatible for what he is. And there's probably a compatibility and there's probably all these good times and they probably just laugh and have fun and do good shit and just do healthy shit. And they don't drink too much and they don't do drugs at all. And they just like have good, reasonable jobs and they're a little bit outdoorsy and they just build this long-term thing and it's not even that it has to work forever like even if they just have a 10-year relationship and then it they just get in a rut and they break up like even even if that's the thing she enjoyed the whole ride and and she's fucking balanced and she'll find another balanced third person that there's some pretty good compatibility with and she's fucking gonna buy her own house you know And I walk away and it's like this, I'm so taken aback by the discrepancy between how I walk away from her table and if her dad isn't a very insightful guy, he can probably be like, wow, that guy seems cooler than your boyfriend. Why didn't you end up dating that guy? And how the truth is, thank God she didn't end up dating that guy because that guy would just... manipulator into being too into him for three months and then and then he'd get bored and then he'd walk walk away and it would sting a little bit and he'd feel weird and annoying and i don't know would it be and i don't know i mean there's a lot of different ways things can go but But the truth is that she's the winner because she makes good decisions for herself. Uh, this is making me th- think of a different thing. It was like, 
for a long time I was talking about the podcast as like, it's a time capsule and I think it's fun to be like, because I now at 35, I'm curious, like, what was I thinking at 25 in a sort of day-to-day? And I think it'd be helpful to know, it'd be helpful and it'd be interesting to know. What was I thinking about in a day-to-day? And so this is a time capsule where at 45 I could listen to this. But I've realized more and more in the last few weeks and months that like I'll never listen to this because I'll cringe. I can't even listen to 30 seconds of this. And I'll never be able to listen to more than 30 seconds of this because this is pure cringe. And that's made me a little bit sad how I realized that I'll never be able to. This is not a time capsule. This is like a message in a bottle that I throw in the ocean and it's an ocean where there's, it's a flat earth type model and there's an edge and the bottle always falls off the edge into the infinity and I'll never get that bottle back. Like I'll never listen to this again. I'll just, I'll just always put this in the bottle every week and throw it in the ocean and it never comes back. And it made me feel like a little bit bad, but then I've been feeling bad about that for a few months, how I realized I'll never listen to this. But then I read this one thing on the internet, like, God damn it, isn't it fucking funny how one sentence memes on the internet is like our main form of self-therapy somehow? Like just one sentence insights about modern life is how we realize everything. So the one sentence thing was like, If you don't cringe about the old stuff, then you're not growing. And I don't know if that's true. Because I feel like I cringe in real time about what I'm saying right now. (laughs) But I'm trying to choose to believe in that because it's the only way I can feel good about it. It's the only way I can feel okay about it. Oh, God. I choose to feel... that that's true. Like, if I am just, if I wasn't cringing, then I wasn't growing. So the fact that I cringe must mean that every single week I grow. Ooh, that doesn't sound very true. Maybe it is true, though. Nah, it is true. Creative destruction, bro. I just have to say all this stuff out loud and it's incredibly embarrassing and then that will set me free. That That is the truth. What was that sound? Yeah, I have to go to work now. If we're not cringing, then um, we're not growing. Maturing is realizing that you were toxic too. That's the thing I saw next to that one. And that's also true. I mean, yeah, that's true. You know, I got a divorce and afterwards I was trying to do all this therapy and about how fucking mean she was to me. But then the true maturing came much later in sobriety with AA and, and taking accountability for my own shit and just realizing I was toxic too. We were both toxic and then I called her on the phone and then I was trying to say how we were both toxic and she really wanted to focus on how I was toxic and I felt how I wanted to be defensive and be like, yeah, but you are not really acknowledging how you were toxic now is what I wanted to say to her. But I didn't say it because I was just observing that desire to say that in myself and realizing that like, 
I'm just maturing here and I can tell how she was toxic and I was toxic and I'm okay with both of us being toxic and I know what we both did and I know what we both said and and she's in a place where she's mostly ready to think about the shitty things I said and she's less ready to think about the shitty things she said and that's okay, you know. It doesn't mean I'm better than her. It probably means I'm in a little bit less pain than her, so I'm sad for her that she's not further along there, but but it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. God, I have to go to work, and I have one water left. Jesus, I have to leave in two minutes. Okay, so this is, we did peach, we did mango. This is peach, pineapple, mango. Bubbly. Bellini Bliss. I shoplifted this can. I did not pay for this can. Stole it from a grocery store. I blipped it in. They it showed up as you cannot buy this on your on its own. You have to buy it in an eight pack. And I waited for an attendant. No attendant showed up, and I left. Oh, that's fucking nice, actually. Mmm. Should have bought an eight pack. Should have paid for it. Mmm. That's so gentle. Nah, nah, the aftertaste is a little bit artificial. Pineapple is low-key my favorite sparkling water. And this starts off pineapple-y, so it's really nice. But then it goes super artificial and almost metallic, which brings it down to a 7. And that's the end of the episode. Oh, thank you for listening, everyone. That's an episode.